Good morning. Good to see you all. Let's pray as we uh, look to God's word. Let's ask for God's help this morning. Lord God, we thank you and we praise you for the gift of your word. We ask, Lord, that your spirit would be at work now. As we look at your word, Lord, would you work by your spirit to bring uh, encouragement, to bring conviction in our lives, to bring growth where it's needed. Lord, we pray and ask that uh, this time would also glorify your son, Jesus Christ, that it would build your church for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. There we go. That's good. I, yeah, I, I like the Thanksgiving holiday. I, you know, I know I'm a few days early. It's next week, right? But I think that Thanksgiving is... It's an overlooked holiday. I love Christmas as much as anybody else, but I feel like Christmas sort of crowds out Thanksgiving, right? I, I saw this online. I'm not one much for big yard blow-ups, but this is fantastic. Someone took a turkey blow-up and put it on top of a Santa and added a sign, wait your turn, fat boy. <laughs> it's just fantastic. I love Thanksgiving. What What's your favorite Thanksgiving food? What are some of the things that you look forward to on that Thanksgiving meal? What was it? Sweet potatoes. Nice. Mashed potatoes. Yeah. Pumpkin pie. Yeah. What else? Yeah, for me, it's, it's, it's not just stuffing. For me, it's stuffing, but it's my mother-in-law's stuffing. She makes the best stuffing of all time. It is so good. Well, Thanksgiving is a feast, and at that feast, we celebrate with Thanksgiving God's providence, his care and his provision for all of our lives. And in God's providence, our text today is about food. (laughs) So turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 14, and the message for us today is this, live as a people holy to the Lord in all that you do. God's people are holy to the Lord. We live set apart from the world around us, and we want to try to answer this question, how does the Christian relate to the Old Testament food laws? We're going to try to answer three questions today. What is the purpose of the food laws? How do they relate to Christians? And how can we honor God in our eating and drinking? So first, what is the purpose of the food laws and the laws for cleanness and uncleanness? We first need to understand what the commands were and why they were given. We need to look at the, and the, the larger picture of the laws about clean and unclean because the food laws is just one subset of that larger category of clean and unclean. So we're going to look at our text this morning, and then we'll look at some passages as well from Leviticus to answer this question. There are two, whoops, two overarching commands in our text for today, Deuteronomy chapter 14, 1 through 21. These two commands, we can summarize them like this. Don't mourn like a pagan, verse 1, and don't eat like a pagan, verse 3 and following. Now, the basis for these two commands is the same. Israel is a people holy to the Lord. We see this in verse 2 and again in verse 21. 
So when grieving for the dead, why shouldn't you cut yourselves? Verse 2, for or because you are a people holy to the Lord. Why shouldn't you eat anything unclean? Verse 21, look down there, for because you are a people holy to the Lord. So verse 2 and verse 21, they act like bookends in this passage, giving us a framework for understanding it. This is about belonging to God and being holy to the Lord. We learn four things about the people of Israel in verses 1 and 2. They're God's children, chosen, beloved, they're his treasured possession, and they're holy. They're set apart from all other peoples. So in verse 1, it says, you are sons of the Lord your God. God is your father, and we're his children. Having God as our father, though, comes with both benefits and obligations. I think we tend to think about the benefits of it. Uh, twice in, uh, in Deuteronomy, the two references we've seen to God as their father stressed his fatherly care and instruction. But here, in this passage, the emphasis is on the other side of the parent-child relationship. It's, it's on the obligation of childlike trust and obedience to their father. Verse 2 says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So they're chosen, beloved, and holy, set apart from all other peoples. God wants his people to live differently than the pagans around them. That's the big picture application for our text. Christians are to live holy to the Lord, set apart to him. We live our entire lives in the presence of God, under the authority of God, for the glory of God. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Dating, marriage, parenting, work, business practices, finances, how you use your money, volleyball, driving, doing chores, be holy in all of your life. Live in the world, but don't live the way the world lives. That's the big picture principle. Back to verse 1. You are sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. I want to assure you that this is all natural. There's been no additional cutting or shaving. This is what it is. As God's children... <laughs> You shall not grieve like the Canaanites. Now, grieving in itself is fine. That's okay, right? But they're specifically told you shall not gash yourselves in grief for the dead. Cutting was part of the Canaanite religion. Think of the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 28. Cutting themselves until the, the blood gushed upon them, it says. Cutting ourselves to find relief from emotional stress is a pagan practice. Cutting ourselves is an attack on the image of God. We're created in the image of God. When we cut ourselves, we're attacking God's image. And it profanes God's name, Leviticus chapter 21, verses 5 and 6. God wants us to bring our grief, our anxiety to Him, to find our comfort and strength and peace in Him, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Now, this, this subject deserves a whole sermon. We're not going to go any further today, 
But let me just say that if you struggle with cutting, would you please tell someone, a parent, a friend, a mentor, a pastor, so that you can get help and support. Verse 3, you shall not eat any abomination. Then in verses 4 through 21, Moses gives a summary of the food laws, and we're going to go through this really quickly. They may only eat what is clean. And then the creatures are divided in this section into three different categories, land, sea, and air creatures. So verses 4 through 8 address the land creatures. They may eat every animal that both parts the hoof and chews the cud. That is, they repeatedly chew their food. Verse 6, that includes cattle, sheep, goats, and here Moses adds seven other kinds of animals that they can also eat, like deer, gazelles, and antelopes, and so forth. But camels, rabbits, and badgers are excluded because they chew the cud, but they don't part the hoof, and pigs are excluded because they part the hoof, but they don't chew the cud. All those animals are unclean and may not be eaten, verse 8. Now, verses 9 and 10 address the sea creatures. Anything with fins and scales is clean and may be eaten. That would exclude things like shellfish. Verses 11 through 20 address flying creatures, birds, bats, and bugs that fly. There's no criteria given for birds, just a list of 21 kinds of birds that are unclean and you're not allowed to eat. Now, the identification of those birds is, is uncertain. Some of them, it's uncertain. We don't know exactly which birds they're talking about. And many, but not all of those birds, are birds of prey or scavengers. Lastly, they can eat clean-winged insects. Now, Moses skips the criteria here. But in Leviticus 11, 20 to 23, we learn that insects that have jointed legs for hopping are clean. So locusts, crickets, and grasshoppers are still on the menu. And I know you're excited about that. Leviticus also addresses swarming creatures as a fourth group, all of which are forbidden. Moses omits them here in Deuteronomy 14. He doesn't mention them at all, probably because of the practical emphasis of the book of Deuteronomy, of his instruction in Deuteronomy. It tends to be more concise and more practical as they go into the land. So Moses mentions seven more animals that can be eaten, but he skips the section that those were, that were totally disregarded as food. Now I want to mention one application or implication here. The Bible views limitations on a man's appetites as fundamental to a proper way of life, be it an appetite for food, sex, money, fame, power, and so forth. The commands that address our appetites show us that God does not allow us to satisfy every desire that we have. Being holy requires self-control, keeping our desires within the boundaries set by God and his word. We also learn here that they are not allowed to eat anything that has died naturally, verse 21, not because the food is spoiled. It must be edible because they're allowed to give it to a sojourner or sell it to a foreigner, but they can't eat it themselves. Why? This most likely has to do with the command not to eat blood. Once again, the issue here is their covenant relationship and their standing with the Lord. Finally, they're commanded not to boil a young goat in its mother's milk, verse 21. This was connected with a pagan practice, and that's why it's forbidden. But it may also be forbidden because it's inappropriate to take a symbol of life 
the mother's milk and to use it to kill the very creature that it was meant to give life to. Just like grieving the dead by cutting yourself so that you gush blood, also a symbol of life, was inappropriate. So this issue of life and death also frames this chapter. Bleeding to grieve the dead and killing an animal by boiling it in its mother's milk were both perverse acts that show contempt for the giver of life. They both take what is meant to give life to the creature and pervert them. As a side note, this principle is what is so heinous and reprehensible about abortion. A mother in her womb meant to give life becomes a place of death. Abortion perverts and inverses God's created design and shows contempt for him. There's something deeply, deeply depraved about women going into a rage because they cannot kill their own children. So the creatures are divided into land, sea, and air, and they're further divided into clean and unclean. God allowed them to eat the clean animals, those that were ritually pure, but not what was unclean, ritually impure. So let's go back to our question. What's the purpose of the food laws and the bigger picture, the purpose of the laws for cleanness or ritual cleanness? There are three primary purposes for the food laws. First and foremost, to set Israel apart as distinct from the nations, holy to the Lord. Leviticus 20, 24 to 26 says this, I am the Lord your God who have separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or bird or anything which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. That's the swarming things, everything in that category is unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Separating the clean food and the unclean food was a picture of God separating Israel from the nations, making them his own people. The clean and unclean distinction corresponds symbolically to the distinction between Israel and the nations. Second, to enable Israel to dwell in the presence of a holy God. In Leviticus 10.3, the Lord says, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. For them to be in the presence of a holy God and to enter into his presence in worship required ritual purity. God is holy and they must live for his glory. They were to avoid what would defile his dwelling and damage their relationship with him. Leviticus 10 goes on to say in verses 10 and 11, God says to Aaron, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the clean and the unclean. You're to teach the people of Israel. So the priests were supposed to teach uh, the people how to live as God's holy nation and the distinction between holy and common on the one hand and clean and unclean on the other hand was at the heart of that teaching. Holy is contrasted with common. Holy, if it's set apart for God, it's holy. And that could be people, places, or things. Clean is contrasted with unclean, and that has to do with being ritually pure or impure. A person could become ritually unclean in a whole bunch of different ways, by skin diseases, 
physical intimacy in marriage, giving birth, a discharge of bodily fluids, touching something dead, or eating unclean foods. That's Leviticus 11 through 15. All people, even priests, were to avoid becoming defiled or unclean. Those who were ritually unclean could not participate in the sacrifices or worship at the tabernacle. Before coming into God's presence, they first had to purify themselves. Purification always meant waiting a certain amount of time, but it could also include ritual washings or atoning sacrifices. The point is, is you could not approach a holy God, the holy God, when you were unclean. Now, in the Old Testament, clean and unclean are not equal to sinful and not sinful. Those are not the same categories. You could be ritually unclean without having done anything sinful. So, for example, physical intimacy in marriage made a couple unclean, Leviticus 15, 18. But that wasn't a sin. There was no sacrifice of atonement required for that, just a washing. However, it would still prevent them from being able to come into the presence of the Lord. So, the question is, how could a holy God dwell in the midst of a sinful people? The answer was the Levitical sacrificial system. That's why those who were ritually unclean had to go through these ritual washings so they could be in the camp and remain in proximity to God. So, Leviticus 15, 31, uh, at the end of the law on clean and unclean, it says this, Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. So, the purpose of clean and unclean was not just to keep Israel separate from the nations that were around them, but also to enable them to live in the presence of a holy God. But ritual clean and unclean ended because we approach God and deal with sin through Jesus Christ, not the sacrificial system. And that leads to the third and the ultimate reason to point Israel to Christ who fulfills the sacrificial system. It points to our need for cleansing that only, the kind of cleansing that only Christ can bring. And we're going to talk about that more in a moment. We're going to see the food laws were a shadow, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, there may have been secondary benefits to these food laws like hygiene, reverence for life, or teaching self-discipline, but those are all secondary at best. There's three main reasons. They set Israel apart from the nations, they enable them to dwell in the presence of a holy God, and they point to Christ. So that leads us to our second question. How do the laws for ritual cleanness, including the food laws, relate to Christians? Christ has fulfilled the ceremonial aspects of the law and the sacrificial system. So the laws regarding clean and unclean food no, are no longer in effect. In Mark 7, 14 through 23, which we read earlier, Jesus makes it clear that what goes into a person from outside cannot defile him. Verse 18, why? Because it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. Then Mark adds, thus he declared all foods clean. Verse 19, what truly defiles a person is not what they eat, not what a man eats, what goes into him, but what comes out of him from his heart. Verse 20, for from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, and so forth. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Verse 21 to 23. 
So what truly defiles is sin that flows from sinful desires. What really, really matters is not ritual purity, but moral purity. Jesus rebuked those that washed the outside of the cup, but not the inside, who focused on the ritual, but neglected the moral purity. To apply the Mosaic law, then, we've got to understand it in reference to Jesus. The Levitical sacrificial system was how they approached God, how they dealt with their sin, but they needed, they needed sacrifices to pay for sin, priests to mediate them between them and God, a temple where God dwelled, the rules for who and how people could approach him and how close they could come. But the Levitical sacrificial system is obsolete. It's no longer binding because it's been fulfilled in Jesus. Now, no Christian argues that we still need to sacrifice animals to atone for sin. But it's not just the sacrifices, but the temple, the priesthood, the feasts, the food laws, the regulations for ritual cleanness that went with it. Those were a shadow. The substance belongs to Christ, as it says in Colossians chapter 2. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. Those are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. All right, so we have the shadow of the water bottle, and we have the water bottle itself. Which would you rather have, the shadow or the water bottle? The water bottle. Which one will benefit you, the shadow or the water bottle? The water bottle. The shadow doesn't really do much for you except maybe in that it points you to the real thing. That's the point that Paul is making here. These food laws were shadow, just a shadow. Christ is the substance. So how do the food laws point us to Christ? First, we've been cleansed inwardly and completely through Jesus Christ. Typologically, the sin offering and the ritual baths foreshadowed the power of Jesus to cleanse the conscience. The law of clean and unclean showed how thoroughly defiled they are. They point to the need to be delivered and cleansed from within. As the author of Hebrews says, the gifts and the sacrifices that the priests offered cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Hebrews 9, 9 and 10. But when Christ appeared as the final high priest, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, not of this world, Jesus entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Verses 11 and 12. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, then how much more will the blood of Christ through the, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The ritual food laws and the washings and the regulations about the body are here called dead works. 
they're imposed until the time of reformation, the time when Christ comes. Now that Christ has come, they're no longer in effect. Why? Because they could never cleanse the conscience. Our hearts are cleansed by faith in Christ, Acts 15, 9. Christ purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Second, we have full access to God and He dwells with us through Christ. The sacrificial system was needed so that God could dwell with them. Remember, there's a difference between uncleanness and sinfulness. But both of those things kept a person from the tabernacle and from the presence and fellowship of God. Atonement was needed for both. So Leviticus 16, 16 and 17 says this, Thus he, that's the high priest, shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. So the sacrifices and the priesthood was how the Lord gave his people access to him, his forgiveness and fellowship with him. But we no longer relate to God through the sacrificial system, but through Jesus Christ. He fulfilled the sacrificial system and we approach God through Christ's perfect and final sacrifice, not through ritual cleansing and sacrifices. So we read, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean, Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. The spirit of Christ now dwells in each and every Christian. Each Christian uh, both individually and corporately, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. God's presence dwells in you and in you corporately. Third, God has broken down the dividing walls separating Jew and Gentile through Christ. That's the lesson that God teaches Peter in Acts chapter 10. The division of animals into clean and unclean symbolized the separation between Israel and all other peoples. Abolishing the food laws symbolizes the breaking down of the separation between Jew and Gentile. So God lowers in this vision a sheet full of animals from heaven to Peter, and Peter is told to eat, Acts 10, 11 through 13. Peter objects that he's never eaten anything unclean, verse 14. And God says to him, what God has made clean, do not call common, verse 15. This happened to Peter three times, verse 16. Now the context as a whole in Acts 10 has to do with Peter's reception of Cornelius, a Gentile centurion. And Peter learns that he should not call any person common or unclean, verse 28. God taught Peter that the division of animals into clean and unclean was over, and that prepared him for his visit to Cornelius, the turning point for removing this barrier between Jews and Gentiles in Christ. There's no unclean food. There is no unclean people. Those are, that's two implications of the gospel. The badge of Jewish separateness, these food laws, no longer applies. Jesus broke down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 14 and following. The only division that remains is those who belong to Christ and those who do not. The clean and unclean food laws are no longer in effect for us as Christians. Jesus declared all foods clean, 
Mark 7, 19. They were a shadow, Christ is a substance, Colossians 2, 16 and 17. That's why Paul says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, Romans 14, 14. And food will not commend us to God, 1 Corinthians 8, 8. You're no more spiritual if you eat pork or avoid it. Now, if you decide not to eat pork because you think it's unhealthy, that's fine. But you need to know that abstaining does not commend you to God. It does not make you more holy. The point is the food laws are abrogated because Christ fulfilled their intended purpose. Yet, we're still called to strive for moral purity in our life. God's people are still called to be holy, separate from the practices of the world, but it doesn't include any longer laws about clean and unclean food. That leads to the third question. How can you honor God in your eating and drinking? Does all of this mean that there's no application for us as Christians when it comes to our eating and drinking? No. God has a lot to say about it. Food is still a matter for theological and moral concern in the Bible and in the New Testament. And let me give just a sketch of four principles. First, care for your brother. This is the primary concern, showing love for your brother by what you eat or don't eat. Paul says in Romans 14, 20, everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. Nothing is unclean, but there are some who are weak in the faith who think that certain foods are unclean, and for them, it is unclean if they eat it. Verse 14, why? Because their eating is not from faith, and anything that does not proceed from faith is a sin. Romans 14, 23. It's the same lesson in 1 Corinthians 8. In both places, Paul warns, do not put a stumbling block before a brother by what you eat or drink. So for example, if you're having someone over for dinner who doesn't eat pork, don't serve bacon-wrapped pork chops. Save that for when I come over. Paul says it's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble, Romans 14, 21. If you do, you're no longer walking in love. That's the core issue in both places. So that's one principle. Everything is clean, but don't cause a weaker Christian to stumble by what you eat or drink. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, Romans 14, 3. So care for your brother. Avoid legalism, judgmentalism, selfishness, and stumbling blocks. Love is supreme. Second, care for your body. The Bible teaches in many places to avoid gluttony and drunkenness. That is, overeating or overdrinking. For example, be not among drunkards or gluttonous eaters of meat, for the drunkard and glutton will come to poverty. Proverbs 23, 20, and 21. So, when it comes to food and drink, the Bible teaches moderation and self-control. Keep in mind this principle on Thanksgiving. On the other hand, the Bible also warns us against asceticism. That is, severe treatment of the body, starving yourself, not allowing yourself to eat. Colossians 2.23, 1 Timothy 4, 1-4. So, eat when you're hungry, stop when you're full, eat healthy. You are to nourish your body, Ephesians 5.29. God calls us to care for our bodies because they're the temple of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 6, care for your body. No gluttony, no starving yourself, eat healthy. Third, fast for more of Christ and his kingdom. 
There is a time and a place and a way in which to abstain from food, right, that still glorifies God. The Pharisees asked Jesus and his disciples why they weren't fasting. And Jesus says or asks, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? If you've been to a wedding, you know that it's unthinkable for the guests to fast. That's a time for feasting, for celebration. They didn't fast because Jesus, the bridegroom, is with them. That was a time for celebration. Now, in the Old Testament, fasting was about times of crisis. People fasted in confession for sin and in hope of God's deliverance and to turn aside disaster. Jesus says his disciples are going to fast when the bridegroom is taken away from them. They will fast in those days, Luke 5, 35. Now, that's today. It, it's It's now until Christ returns. Now is the time for fasting because Christ is not with us. This is what we want. We want Christ to return and establish his kingdom in full. This is how Christian fasting is different. We fast because we want more of Christ. We fast because we don't have him as fully or as gloriously as we want to have him. Or we will have him when we reach heaven. A day's coming when we are going to feast with Christ in heaven, the bridegroom, at the wedding supper of the Lamb, and we're going to be in his presence, unhindered in our fellowship with him. Until that day comes, we fast and we pray because we long for the bridegroom. We want others to know him. We want his bride, the church, to be pure, and we want him to return. The more satisfied we are in Christ, the more dissatisfied we become with the things of this world. The more that we want Christ's kingdom rule to spread on earth. So we fast and we pray for God's will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven. We fast and we pray for the spread of the gospel to our children and our neighbors and our co-workers. We fast and we pray because we want more of Christ present and active in our lives, in our families, in our churches, in our nations. So we fast and pray against unrighteousness, against abortion and human trafficking and, and so on. We fast and pray because for, for wisdom because we want God's will done in our own lives. We fast and pray to overcome sin so that we might enjoy more of Christ in our lives. Fasting is a spiritual attack. It's an attack against sin because to love God is to hate sin. Now, food is a gift to be enjoyed, but there are times when we abstain for spiritual reasons. Fourth and finally, feast for the glory of God, giving thanks and praise in the enjoyment of God's provision. When we feast, we are looking ahead to a greater feast that is to come, Revelation 19, 6 through 9, that wedding supper of the Lamb. We feast with enjoyment and giving thanks for God's provision, for all the good that he has given us. Everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, for it's made holy by the word of God and prayer, 1 Timothy 4, 4 and 5. Paul asks the Corinthians, he says, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you haven't received it? 1 Corinthians 4, 7. The point he's making is, 
Every single thing that you have is a gift from God. You have no reason for boasting at all. You have every reason to give thanks and praise to God for his provision in your life. So thank him and praise him. Realize that every time you sit down to a meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, (laughs) every time it's an opportunity to give thanks to God for his provision and a reminder to do everything for his glory. But especially this week, that's what Thanksgiving is all about. We're feasting on purpose in thankfulness to God for his provision, for his providence. So it's okay to enjoy food to the glory of God. Now, feasting, when it's done right, is a kind of worship and warfare. Worship, because we give thanks and praise for all of God's provision, and warfare, because in recognizing that everything we have is a gift of God, we fight against our pride and against our self-sufficiency. So fasting and feasting are both meant to point us to God. I'll summarize like this. You're God's children, chosen, beloved, set apart as holy. So live holy to the Lord in all that you do. Live set apart from the world around you. Don't live like pagans. That's the big picture. And specifically as it relates to food, even though the clean and unclean food laws no longer apply, there is still a way to eat and drink to the glory of God. Because everything that we do is meant to bring glory to God. So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you and we praise you this morning for your provision. Yes, all the provision in our lives materially, we're so richly blessed but ultimately for your provision in your son, Jesus Christ, who cleanses us from all unrighteousness. God, we ask and pray that you would help us to live wholeheartedly for your glory in all that we do. We ask it and we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.